hello and welcome. You are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM, streaming from Bridgeport CT. I'm Bonnie Likes, here with engineer Sean Bigler, who's dialing up his audio library. And we're both here to share the February edition of What's Happening New Haven. Firstly, I want to wish you a very vibrant and educationally enlightening Black History Month that begins today and lies collectively ahead of us. And along this line, we have an excellent program planned for you this hour. In the second half, we'll be sharing the first segment of an eight-part podcast series titled Revolution on Trial, The Makings of a Movement, presented and investigated by journalist and communications expert Mercy Quay. And with this first episode, we'll hear her gather primary perspectives on the compelling and often misunderstood history of the New Haven Black Panthers. And to start things off, Mercy Quay will speak with us about the series and so much more. But first, let me share some of her background. Mercy Quay has built a storied career in journalism, communications, and public relations in New Haven and statewide. After spearheading communication strategies in a variety of industries, she launched the Narrative Project to offer high-quality communications for organizations who seek to do good in the world. At the core of everything she does is a deeply-seated desire to affect positive social change and highlight lesser-discussed aspects of Black and American experiences. The daughter of a Ghanaian immigrant on one side and a first-generation college student on the other, Mercy's relationship to justice through storytelling and exposure was born shortly after moving from low-income housing in Newhallville to the West River in New Haven. She's also a professor of digital journalism at Southern Connecticut State University, the vice president for communications with the Connecticut Society of Professional Journalists, and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media. Her column, Subtext, offers readers some deep dives with lesser examined perspectives. Mercy Quay, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So maybe we should begin with a little childhood history, because I get the sense this is actually when your career started, Mercy. You grew up in a busy household, a full house, as one might call it. And as a child, you'd walk around interviewing family members and getting their perspectives. Can you talk about how this younger version of yourself ultimately progressed into your present career, writing, consulting, and communications? Uh, that's a that's a great question. It actually also brings me back to um, this little uh, recorder that my grandfather gave me that had a microphone on it and uh, the, the tape inside. It was you know we were we were uh, a family of you know little means and it was a prized possession of myself and um, and it's exactly, I think you're, you know, you're exactly right. It's exactly what put me on the path towards reporting. Um, from then on, I sort of sat with my um, parents and grandparents whenever they watched the news and sort of um, tuned in, really just stayed alert and um, continued to be engaged in what was going on. I had a professor in college who said this phrase that I, I that sticks with me today and I say to my staff, it's hard to do something you've never seen. So if you want to be a good, uh, good reporter, you have to read and consume good reporting. Um, and so throughout my time, even as, you know, uh, adolescence in my adolescence and, and coming up through high school, 
I was consuming a lot of information, not just here in New Haven, but sort of um, nationally um, and globally consuming a great deal of content from NPR and the BBC. Um, you know, uh, one of my first internships was at the New Haven Independent and then the New Haven Register. Um, and I remained tuned in throughout the entirety of that time. Uh, right out of college, the New Haven Register, the company that owned the New Haven Register at the time, it was um, the journal uh, register company, JRC, um, and Digital First Media um, offered me a job to cover education up in Torrington um, at the Torrington Register Citizen. So I was covering, I had a geographical beat um, covering education uh, and city politics in Winstead, Holbrook and Norfolk. And that was sort of the start to my hard hitting breaking news career <laughs> covering small town politics. That's amazing. Now, Mercy, you are the founder of the Narrative Project, an organization uh, that's accumulated strong civic and community support for its mission. Can you explain to those of us who aren't familiar what the Narrative Project is all about and what fueled your decision to found it? Yeah. Um, so I actually can't tell the story about the Narrative Project's beginnings without going back to 2014-15. Um, so the Narrative Project actually started as a, um, as a community conversation platform. Um, I would bring people together in coffee shops or whatever venue was available to us to tackle some of the hard issues of the day. Um, and it actually started after the... Uh, either the trial of Trayvon Martin or um, the situation in Ferguson with Michael Brown. And it's, it's actually a part mm. of my point that I can't tell the difference, right? Mm. It's a part of the point that I can't quite remember which of the shootings of an unarmed black person um, sparked uh, the need for having a community, uh, a community conversation platform. Um, at that time, we called it the black narrative and effectively, you know, we were saying we were inviting people from all walks of life to come together to talk about the black narrative. And the first conversation was, who owns it? Who owns the black narrative? And what does that mean? Um, after uh, a handful of conversations, you know, I, while I think, and I think a great deal of organizers would agree with me that black is all inclusive, um, I wanted that to be really clear in how we are communicating the work that we are doing. And so I, switched it over to the Narrative Project and to continue the work under the name The Narrative Project. And what was going on was organizations were reaching out to me to um, host these conversations in a facilitated way um, and saying, you know, mm -hmm. my, my, the, the staff at my school needs to have a conversation around um, identity and the problematic narratives that um, rule our everyday thinking around race and identity. And so I would come to schools and um, universities and host and facilitate conversations, do uh, privilege walks, which um, is an exercise that um, represents the, it allows us to see the physical manifestation of space that privilege puts between us. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, after sort of writing the parallels of the thing that I did in my spare time and the thing that I was doing in uh, my real life, my day job, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, you know, at that time I had left journalism and I was um, had transitioned into public relations, I was sort of writing the parallels of those two things. And what I realized was all of the organizations that had been reaching out to me had a communications issue at their core. Wow. Internally, mm -hmm. folks 
didn't know how to talk about race and identity. And if you don't know how to talk about race and identity internally, there's no way you can practice that externally. And so um, when I launched the narrative project as a um, anti-racist and social justice communications and public relations agency, Mm -hmm. it was with the goal of supporting mission-driven organizations to do just that, right? Figure out how we can talk about race and identity and unpack and dismantle the problematic narratives that, again, rule the way we talk about and think about race and identity and do that internally so we can do it better externally and achieve our goals. I see. So over time, has your concept of the narrative changed? So um, I really, I think that's what where project comes in, right? Because project ah. implies that we are ever improving. And, you know, yes. one, of the, one of the core values on our team is continuous improvement. Right. We talk about continuous improvement every single day because there's something that we can all uh, learn every single day. And that is that's one of the principles that I I want to apply to the work of anti-racism. Right. When you are thinking about um, uh, when you think about the word project. Right. The goal of anti-racism should actually just be a project. It it should be an ongoing project. It should never be right a destination, but um, instead a constant endeavor to improve. So you are a New Haven native and raised in the West River area of town. Why is New Haven so special to you? What is it about the city that made you (laughs) love and care for it in this groundbreaking way? What about the narrative uh, during that time got you going? Yeah, so I just, I think embedded in the streets of New Haven is poetry. Um, And I, I can say it even from, you know, The housing development that I grew up in, um, that I sort of, I'll say this, I I came to in, right, the place where my memories began was sort of on the border of a really low-income neighborhood in Yale, and that border, the name of that street was Division Street, right, and so (laughs) there are, there is um, irony and poetry throughout the streets of New Haven and um, in mm. the people who um, who claim this town as their home. And even in the podcast, I call it um, a, a uh, small town city um, because even though we are a place with more than 10 high schools and several middle schools and and right six universities, it feels really small. It feels as mm-hmm. though, you know, the the borders with our neighboring cities close in and you get to know your neighbors really well. But you also get to know the folks who uh, run for mayor really well. And you get to know the principals and the superintendent really well. Um, and some of that is, again, just sort of embedded in um, my 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 life and growing up and in, in, um, developing a career here in New Haven mm-hmm. um, from. Uh, going to New Haven Public Schools to eventually working as the director of communications for New Haven Public Schools, mm-hmm. right? There, There is, for me, I think, just a richness in um, the diversity that we have here and the culture that we have here. If you're going to live anywhere in the state, I think New Haven's a top choice. Sounds good to me. <laughs> so um, <laughs> when you, ha- have you worked directly with children? I, you, you go to schools and speak, is that right? Are, are you interacting right. with, with a particular age group? Um, so the narrative project actually transitioned at a particular time. So we no longer put on um, uh, facilitation 
of uh, privilege walks or privilege circles. Um, uh, we don't do that anymore. We focus primarily on uh, communications and public relations practices. Um, and so in our, uh, in the period of time when we were doing um, uh, workshop facilitation, we were working primarily with professionals. We weren't working with, uh, with, with youth a great deal. Ah, okay, um, right. mm-hmm. we, unless we would partner with organizations who wanted to bring us into their youth groups. And um, a particular uh, story that I have with this is I was invited to do a, um, a privilege circle is sort of the same thing as a privilege walk. It's, you know, you, you just do it in a more constricted space. Um, and I was invited to a, to do a privilege circle um, in Milford, Connecticut, well, in Milford, Connecticut here, mm-hmm. right? And it was this moment, um, it was a predominantly white church, though, you know, it would be unfair for me to say it was, you know, completely or exclusively white church, but it was a predominantly white church. Mm-hmm. And um i brought a gentleman with me to help facilitate the uh uh workshop his his name was matt friedland and he's white himself and he, we sort of started our facilitations with hey i'm mercy i'm black hey i'm mad i'm white right <laughs> just to <laughs> call out the obvious to begin with and there i was in a room of uh all white people the only black person and um all six foot taller um, or, or uh, six foot or taller um, teenage boys. And so it was wow. a very rowdy group of <laughs> teens. <laughs> and, you know, it didn't matter that I was an adult. It didn't matter that, you know, by this point, mm. I had gotten to a point in my career where I, I felt, you know, uh, safe and secure in my identity or, you know, my livelihood, what have you. I was in a room where, you know, the caste system of America tells me that I am not the leader in this room and I had to actually come in and command that space as though I was a leader. And so working with teens in that way to, in some cases for in this case in particular, even um, uh, dive into matters of diversity and identity mm-hmm. for the first time with them mm-hmm. um, really, I feel opens doors to all of these other opportunities. But the trick is that has to continue to be nurtured. It cannot be a single moment. It has uh-huh. to be a project. It sounds like in that moment you had to get grounded real fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I had to, I had to sort of, you know, uh, uh, come in very confident and say, "All right, you know, I, I have been a camp counselor in my past. When I was a teenager, I was a camp counselor. So I was like, all right, pull back in all of the things that you learned as a camp counselor. Clipboard, whistle, yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's one look mic, at one mic. Yeah, totally. So, Mercy, let's look at some of the other hats you wear. You write for the New Haven Register, Hearst Communications. Can you give us a few examples of some of the articles that you've generated, perhaps ones that have been particularly inspiring for you to write? Sure. So I, um, in, geez, what was this, 2018 or 19, started uh, um, producing a column for uh, Hearst Connecticut Media, and it was... um, uh, to the credit of Matt Dorenzo, um, who was, um, while he was at Hearst Connecticut Media, wanted to put give a great deal of attention to diverse um, perspectives. And so he brought me on board and I started writing this column. We called it subtext because we were um, 
putting highlighting the lesser examined um perspectives mm-hmm. um and uh some of a, a column or a series of columns that comes to mind for me that made this work enjoyable was last summer when um gary winfield sponsored a um a police accountability bill um that challenged qualified immunity here in connecticut you know, I reached out to some colleagues over at ACLU and I said, well, let's actually put this on blast as much as we can. I've got this platform. I've got this column. Let's talk about why qualified immunity is problematic. And let's talk about, um, you know, we, we, when, when we are examining the cries for um, defunding the police, let's, let's examine that. Let's dissect that. How many people in Connecticut are presently living lives that, are with are you know in total without police right Mm -hmm. thinking about the towns that don't actually have police departments they don't have a police presence with the exception of a state trooper um and so i worked with the aclu to really dive into the issues over a few um columns and and we tackled police unions we tackled qualified immunity we tackled um uh town and city policing through the uh, state police and we really tried to paint a picture of right when folks say it is an unrealistic expectation that we will defund the police, or when folks say it is an unrealistic expectation that you can abolish police departments, it for me felt as as though in that moment I uh, um, I had to step back and say, well, but if we did, what would that look like? And is anyone living that reality today? And really being able to pull back the the layers of that onion to say, people are even mm-hmm. here in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, great topics, um, and they're unfolding so quickly before our eyes these days. Um, Mercy, you're also teaching currently. Do you share <laughs> Do you share viewpoints such as this uh, with your students? I do, and you know, I also encourage my students to think freely. But I think that some of the issues we have had in our history as a country is we give students the opportunity to think freely, but we don't, we don't actually encourage them to think justly. Mm. And so in the work that I do, and I teach digital journalism at Southern Connecticut state university. um, Yes. I have to sort of stay in my lane. Right. Uh Um, I was wondering, I was wondering. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it sort of is, of the mindset of when I'm covering data journalism, look at these numbers and tell me what the story is, right? And it's really easy to look at a data set, a raw data set, and you're looking at, you know, crime rates in Hartford versus West Hartford or crime rates in New Haven versus Woodbridge, right? Um, And you're looking at a raw data set and you say, it's easy to say that the crime rate in New Haven is higher. And that could be your story if, 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 if you want, right? But what I am working with, what I've worked with my students to uh, do and think through is what are the implications? Why would that be? Mm-hmm. Right. If we come in with the mindset that everyone is actually created equally and there aren't differences, there aren't major differences between types of people, then what would be causing the, the situation that makes this true? Because we know the data is true. We mm-hmm. just don't know the implications. We just don't know the why. And so if we can, pull again, pull back the layers and understand the why, then we can have just reporting um, where we contextualize data. We don't just report on it. 
Gotcha. So as we are uh, kind of closing in on time, we cannot end our talk without a discussion on your podcast series, The Makings of a Revolution, spotlighting the Black Panthers, which has eight segments, the first of which we'll be playing in the second half of the hour. So, uh, Mercy, sorry to change horses here, but it's yet another hat that you (laughs) you wear. Uh, (laughs) Would you give us a breakdown of what the series focus is centered around? Yeah. um, So an incredibly um, exciting story that I had the opportunity to partner with Artspace New Haven to produce. Um, Artspace took on the task of putting on an exhibition for the 50th anniversary of um, the uh, trials of the New Haven Black Panther Party. Um, And in examining that story, um, we said, well, you know, what is the legacy of the New Haven Black Panthers? And so the series um, dives into the legacy, sort of the the mark they left on New Haven is, is the phrase that I say in the podcast. Mm. Um, and we look at that through, you know, who is here presently sort of holding up the mantle and um, that the Panthers sort of left behind. Um, but because this is also living history, because there are Panthers who are living, ah, we also yes. interviewed... Um, members of the Black Panther Party um, who were on trial at that time. So we interviewed uh, Erica Huggins, who was um, married to a, a, a gentleman who was a part of the um, uh, Black Panther Party out in California, but was from New Haven, John Huggins. Um, and uh, when she came, when her husband died um, out in California, she came out to New Haven to bury him. And at that time, because there was already such an interest in organizing an active an activism among the um, black community, uh, folks in the community asked Erica Huggins to create the Black Panther chapter. Um, this series also dives into the murder of Alex Rackley um, and the start of the trial of New Haven Black Panthers. Um, and and the uh, conspiracies and the um, surveillance operations that were put on by the FBI. I mean, it, it goes into detail um, and it really grabs the story of um, some of the individuals who were there during the time. But then it does this through line into, well, what are the implications for today? And so it, it's a really incredible series um, with perspectives from Yale and perspectives from folks who were 17 at the time, through to organizers in New Haven today. I have to say, too, that the production is excellent. Uh, Wonderful. Thank you. I'm so happy. Yeah, it really has a three-dimensional quality to it, and it's riveting, very compelling. So, Mercy, as we wrap things up and go into the second half of the hour here with your investigation, the first segment of your series, The Making of a Revolution, uh, where you do explore the firsthand accounts of the Black Panthers in New Haven, can you tell listeners... Uh, in closing now, where they can find you online, your work, the following segments of your podcast series, your projects, all that you'd like to share before we say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say um, you can find my work at narrative-project.com. Um, and I'm on all channels at Mercy Right Now. And that's right as in writing, um, as in writer's block, M-E-R-C-Y <laughs> underscore right now. Um, and you know, I, I, I would be remiss to say that in looking for me, I, I would just hope that you would also um, follow the footsteps through to the organizations that the Narrative Project supports. So that's, um, you know, CT Core Organized Now, 
um, uh, the, the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance, as well as Connecticut Voices for Children and uh, some of the other organizations that are doing great work throughout New Haven in Connecticut. Excellent. Mercy Quay, thank you for your groundbreaking work and contributions to the city of New Haven and beyond. And we um, thank you very much for coming on the program today. It was a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. you're just hopping on our wagon, you have found WPKN 89.5 FM. This is What's Happening New Haven. We're delighted you've zeroed in on this edition as we launch the very first calendar date for Black History Month. In fact, just after we finished chatting with Mercy Quay in the first half of the hour, she updated us to a recent press release. The Community Foundation for Greater New Haven has announced what is to be called Stepping Forward, a commitment of $26 million to address the issues of both COVID-19 and racial inequity, both causing fundamental challenges to people's lives in Greater New Haven. An online panel event is happening this evening, February 1st, that all are invited to attend between 6.30 and 7.30 p.m. For more information about registration, you're welcome to check it out at cfgnh.org. That's C like care, F like find, G like good, and NH like newhaven.org. Now it's time to sit back and listen to the investigative journey Mercy Quay has produced and brought together in her eight-part series, Revolution on Trial, presented in part by Artspace New Haven. You can find all subsequent episodes following today's first of the series at artspacenewhaven.org and can be accessed on a variety of platforms. This first segment is titled The Makings of a Movement. My story before New Haven is so interwoven with the story in New Haven. I got to know the guy who committed the murder and turned his life around. I didn't realize I was the son of, of a Black Panther until, you know, later on in life. This is the story of the New Haven Black Panther Party, their legacy, their commitment to justice, and the mark they left on the model city. 50 years after the Mayday riots and the trial riddled with conspiracy and torture, it's time to look back and consider the true cost of progress. From the Narrative Project and Artspace, you're listening to The Revolution on Trial. Hey folks, I'm Mercy Quay. I'm a journalist and the founder of The Narrative Project, Connecticut's only social justice and anti-racist communications group. I'm also a New Haven native and I grew up hearing the stories of the New Haven Panthers from just about everybody. To understand that story, you kinda have to start by understanding New Haven. I like to call New Haven a small town city and it embodies that contradiction at every turn. 
We've got city amenities, food, culture, and entertainment, but we've also got small town problems like your cousin lost his bid for mayor and the family's still upset about it all these years later. We've got 10 high schools and 21 elementary schools, altogether serving nearly 22,000 students, but somehow, by the time you get to high school, you feel like you know everyone. We've had 51 mayors since our founding, and the first was actually a signer of the declaration, something I only learned from reporting the story. We've got our flaws, but we've been somewhat progressive since the beginning. Like for instance, the Amistad Africans who revolted and eventually won their freedom started that whole journey right here in New Haven. There's a statue outside of City Hall that won't let you forget how our city played a role in that part of history. Our first immigrant mayor was elected in 1899. Our first Jewish mayor served in 1917. But we're still a little behind the ball if you ask me. Our first black mayor served from 1990 to 1993 and our first female mayor began her six year tenure only in 2014. Roughly 130,000 people live here, and of course, we're the home of Yale University. But most people who live here wouldn't be surprised by being described as the tale of two cities. There are folks who are incredibly wealthy, and then there are folks who aren't by any stretch of the imagination. But like I said, everybody kinda knows everybody, and if you don't know them personally, your mother definitely does. That's in part what made compiling the stories for this podcast difficult. Everyone had a cautious interest, the kind that made them want to tell you their stories, but they've been burned too many times in the past by people they knew to feel completely comfortable with it. George Edwards, one of the original New Haven Panthers, is a perfect example of that. We'll hear his story later on in the series, but it's riddled with trauma and conspiracy. If you don't know him and you haven't done your research, it would be easy to mistake his demeanor for unjustified paranoia. But if you have, one thing is clear, every person involved in this story has a justifiable distrust of people they don't know, of authority figures, and of the government at large. Here's why. On May 19, 1969, members of the New Haven Black Panther Party fell accused and stood trial for the kidnap, torture, and murder of Alex Rackley, a fellow Panther who they suspected of being an FBI informant. Several members of the party were put on trial for it, even though one, Warren Kimbrough, had confessed to the murder. The details of this incident would get hashed out over the course of a trial that kicked off in October 1970. During that time, the Panthers suffered ongoing surveillance, state-sanctioned wiretapping by local and federal authorities, and were harassed to no end. But it's important to know there was so much going on in New Haven before the trial even began. I, I'm gonna ask you if you know them, if you know the last name Smalls. I know some Smalls, but I don't know if they're your Smalls. This is Elise Brown. She was in her late teens when the trial happened and was involved in New Haven organizing through the Hill Parents Association. The Smalls I know are from South Carolina. I don't yeah. Think, um, That's where my mother South was born. Holly Hill, South Carolina? Um, not Holly Hill, Beaufort, South Carolina. Oh, Beaufort, yeah. Before agreeing to interview with me, so Ms. Brown required some sharing on my part so she could discern the purpose of the project and figure out who I was. During that process, we kinda did the New Haven song and dance where we found out she knows a lot of my people, my grandfather, his sisters, that kind of thing. That name and is my... familiar. Yeah, that's my... <laughs> you serious? Yeah. Okay, what's his sister's name? This 
isn't atypical of New Haven at all. It's just the kind of place we are. I interviewed Miss Brown during the statewide shutdown due to COVID-19. This is her on the phone in her kitchen. Well, my name is Elise Brown, born and raised in New Haven, uh, attended Hill House High School. Um, and uh, while I was in high school, um, I became interested in the Black Panther Party. Um, before that, I had had some community activism, um, basically uh, surrounding children and neighborhood embitterment. So that's where I was coming from. I'd like to know a bit about your transition from high school to that time. In high school, back then, there was a lack of uh, books concerning African descended people and poor people in general. Other communities that were marginalized were not represented in the books. We formed a BSU in Hill House High School Black Student Union, and we had some demands, um, one of which had to do with uh, having books that reflected you know, our community. Hill House High School was very diverse. It had a significant Jewish population. Um, for the teachers, um, there were very few black teachers at the time. I think uh, there was someone in what they call distributive ed workshop and typing. Other than that, academically, um, we demanded to have some black teachers. And we got uh, Mr. Scott. He taught black history and they brought Miss Barilla in to teach Spanish. It was severely lacking, so we had demands, and, um, you know, there was a lot of activism. At the time, in 1968, Martin Luther King, of course, was assassinated. Uh, the students walked out of school, went to the community house, the Dixville Community House, and held a meeting, and just, uh, I can't remember if it was a press conference or not, but... You know, we made our voices heard. It was a very, very sad day when Dr. Martin Luther King died. And some of us dedicated our lives to um, to uh, pick up the torch from Dr. Martin Luther King. First of all, my involvement with um, the Hill Parents Association started around 1966 and 1967 long before the Black Panther Party came to New Haven. We need some context, so let's pause right here and talk about the Hill Parents Association. New Haven has about 12 to 16 neighborhoods, depending on how you count. The Hill neighborhood is located in the southwest corner of the city. In the early 1800s, it was known as Sodom Hill, but I've only ever called it The Hill growing up, and I don't know anyone who calls it something different. The racial breakdown is just under 10% white, 35% Black, and just about 50% Latinx, according to census data from 10 years ago. But according to Yale archives from the 60s and 70s, about 15% of New Haven's more than 22,000 Black residents lived in the Hill. If you ever come to New Haven by train, the Hill neighborhood is your gateway through Union Station. It's also the home of Yale New Haven Hospital and the Yale School of Medicine. Ask anyone who grew up here. The Hill Parents Association was the precursor to the Black Panther Party. They organized programming for families and youth that resembled programs that the Panthers became known for. I'm talking reading programs, food access, targeting poverty, and even some socio-political activism. 
Because of the work the Hill Parents Association was doing at the time, New Haven was ripe for the development of a Panther chapter. I worked as a camp counselor. Uh, the Hill Parents Association um, formed uh, concerning issues in the public school. Uh, children were being mistreated and miseducated primarily in the Hill School, um, uh, Prince Street School. And so people in the community came together um, and formed an organization with the parents primarily. And uh, there was male involvement, which was excellent, and there was female involvement. Um, I'm not sure where the funding came, because mind you, I'm a teenager then. Um, but they received funds through the Model Cities, which was partly funded by the government, I believe. So New Haven got more money than any other city in the country to test out anti-poverty programs, urban renewal. This is Paul Bass, editor-in-chief of the New Haven Independent and co-author of Murder in the Model City, the book that details the trial and the moments leading up to it. We spent over $700 per person in 1960s dollars to clear land, um, knock down poor people's neighborhoods in the, in the supposed quest to get rid of poverty, three times as much as any other city. Newark was next. And also to test model city programs, uh, great society programs like legal aid and, and Head Start. But we just got poorer. So there was a sense in town that liberal change was not going to bring the kind of radical change needed to empower people. But we still didn't yet have that party here. And so they had a little office on Congress Avenue. Mind you, in 1967, there were riots. And so the community in the Hill was basically torn down. A lot of buildings were bombed out. And, of course, the parents were concerned, what are their children going to do for the summer? And so uh, it was decided they would develop a camp. And um, I became a camp counselor and rode the bus with the kids out to North Haver and did activities and went to the parks and so forth and so on. So that was the beginnings of the Hill Parents Association. And they were very active and very vocal in the New Haven community. Um, and, and, and begin to organize the communities more and more. They had representation from um, the Puerto Rican community and women as well as men. Um, in January of 1969, um, actually, I think it was the fall of 68, when uh, John Huggins passed through New Haven. A man who grew up in New Haven but was living in L.A. got murdered. His name was John Huggins. And he was a leader in the Black Panther Party, and they had a shootout with Ron Karenger's group, which was a black nationalist group. And there were a lot of issues there. I think history will show that the Panthers were on the right side of that argument. I didn't know him. I just knew he was called Johnny Huggins, and he passed through the doors. But anyhow... Um, January of 69, he was assassinated, and his wife came here. I traveled on a train with my baby daughter, John Huggins Jr.'s baby daughter. This is Erica Huggins, a young mother at the time who would later end up center stage in the New Haven Black Panther story. Three weeks old at the time, to be with John's family in New Haven. And I was there to spend time with John's family. 
uh, of course, to be at John's funeral. And in the back of my mind, I knew that I was already grieving and that I would spend part of my grieving process in New Haven. And then how I got involved in the Black Panther Party chapter in New Haven is that some Yale students and some members of the New Haven Black community came to me and asked if I would start a chapter of the Black Panther Party. Remember, New Haven was poised to go in this direction. The Hill Parents Association had already been doing similar programmatic work, but at the end of the 60s, several civil rights organizations started to converge on New Haven. There were many organizations. You had a startup of a SNCC. You had uh, a SNCC support group that operated out of Dwight Hall on the Yale campus. And they had operated to support the Freedom Rides earlier. And I would go down there. So I had some insight on that. Um, Also, there were people who were active in the New Haven community. A black coalition was formed. And they operated out of office on Gough Street. You had OIC. You had the A. Philip Roth. I think that came later. So there were a number of organizations all throughout New Haven that were speaking to the issues and trying to put pressure on to make things right for poor folks. I spoke to the Black Panther Party Central Headquarters in Oakland, California, and told them that this request was made of me. And we agreed that I would start the chapter or that I didn't need to find the people because there were people already wanting to join the Black Panther Party. It was that time in history where everything was moving and everyone wanted to contribute to movement. So I, I told the people who came to me that, yes, I would start a chapter of the Black Panther Party. And I remember so many people who I met in those, that early formation. And um, we wanted to establish the community survival programs because for me, the community survival programs of the Black Panther Party are the core, the heart of the work that we were doing. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation, particularly its clandestine, at that time, subset counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, had and had this idea of portraying us as people who um, threatened the lives of police officers and therefore were dangerous to community. But, you know, I was an educator already and wanted to pursue programs for children and young adults that were educational in nature. Um, I did end up doing that in 1973-74 school year, and I can talk about that later. But we were busy surviving. We were stalked. We were, we were stalked by phone, by, I mean, landlines, because there were no cell phones. There was no internet. Our cars were followed. Our houses and our phones were tapped, were bugged. Um, 
and we were under siege. Our party offices to get from, you know, from one front door to a car was like walking the gauntlet. That's how it was all over the country, wherever there was a chapter of the Black Panther Party. And there were 40 chapters of the Black Panther Party. Well, there were people who embraced the party. There were people who did not embrace the party. Because, of course, the news media uh, had spread a lot of falsehoods about the party. Um, At the time, there was COINTELPRO operating, and most of us were unaware of that. There was a lot of things going on in the nation that affected New Haven and affected the organizing of the party, unbeknownst to people in the Black Panther Party at the time. I was not a member of the Black Panther Party at that time. It was not until some time later, um, after I graduated from high school. So my activism had been with neighborhood groups and uh, uh, joining the Black Panther Party came after I graduated from high school. But I had attended the political education classes. Because in order to become a member, you had to attend the political education classes. So there were people who came from Bridgeport, uh, New Haven, Hartford, who were interested, you know, uh, interest was sparked in the Black Panther Party, and they were curious and attended the classes and were, you know, not committed, but um, interested. And of course... When the arrest came, it was all aborted. That night when we were all arrested, um, I turned my daughter over to John's family and was separated from her. That was the second time I was separated from her in within the three months of her life at the time. And since I was the the, I don't know what you call it, the head of the party chapter in New Haven, which was not exactly how it worked. But since I was the head, I was most blamed for all of what had happened. I guess what I'm trying to say is that when I try to explain that this wasn't right, there was no one to hear me. And then they wanted, as part of COINTELPRO, to take down the party. So even though the people committed the murder either pleaded guilty or were convicted, they went for the death penalty for people who there was no evidence had anything to do with the murder. That was Erica Huggins and National Party leader Bobby Seale, who had been in town giving a speech, but there was really zero evidence that he had anything to do with this. When you think about the makings of a movement, sometimes it's easy to forget the prologue to the story. Political activism has always been in New Haven's DNA, even if that meant bumping against authority. For that reason, it would be a huge disservice to talk about the New Haven Panthers without first acknowledging the organizing work that made the chapter possible. The arrival of Erica Huggins set a number of dominoes in motion, but like she said, 
she didn't have to find the people. They were already motivated to serve. In the next episode, we're diving into the history of police brutality with organizers and activists who have picked up the mantle of black liberation 50 years later, right here in New Haven. The Panthers were responding to a need in the community, much like many of us that are organizing in the streets. Like a lot of the black respectability, civil rights leaders were just not messing with the Panthers because they believed in arming themselves. They believed in not asking for a seat at the table, but creating their own thing. Much of our movement today, especially the movement focused on Black lives and against police violence, is built off of the foundations of what we learned from those before us who were in the party. Don't miss it next time on The Revolution on Trial. This eight-part series is a co-production of the Narrative Project in Artspace and is a part of a curated exhibition commemorating the 50th anniversary of the New Haven Black Panther Trials. The exhibition was made possible by support from the Public Welfare Foundation, Connecticut Humanities, the Grace Jones Richardson Trust, and the Jana Foundation. To learn more or to donate to Artspace, whose mission is to catalyze artistic activities, connect contemporary artists, audiences, and resources, and to enrich art experiences and activate art spaces, visit artspacenh.org. The exhibition's curators are Sarah Fritchie and Latanya Autry. Artspace's executive director is Lisa Dunn. The immediate former executive director is Helen Cowder. The exhibition's researchers are Joshua Aiken, Naida Sam, and Min Vu. Our graphic designer is Daniel Pizarro. The Narrative Project's sound engineer is Sam Haddleman. Our editors are Stephen King and Ashley Needlespall. As your host and producer, I'm Mercy Quay, and this is The Revolution on Trial. We just heard an investigative journey of the New Haven Black Panthers with journalist Mercy Quay. This was the first of an eight-part series titled Revolution on Trial. All following segments can be found at artspacenewhaven.org and accessed through various platforms there. This is WPKN 89.5 FM, and this has been the February edition of What's Happening New Haven, and we've enjoyed this commemoration to Black History Month, and WPKN will have lots more to share with you in the month ahead. I'm Bonnie Likes here with Sean Bigler, and we thank you for listening this hour and look forward to joining you again March 1st at high noon. Till then, keep healthy and optimistic and alert to the ways we can make our individual lights shine a little brighter on the real truth of our world and support others to do the same. Bye for now.
warships dispose of this annoyance at once. Does anyone dare challenge my Imperial fleet? Is there no warrior mightier than I? Keyboard. 